0: the plates and lift the weights, and we are mates, and weights are great, and as of late, we pontificate about the weights, and make a podcast! Sumo is cheating! This is Weekly Weights with Alex and Will.
1: Welcome to Weekly Weights, this is episode number 60, I'm Will Berkman, and with me as always is Alex Hayes. Good afternoon.
0: Is it morning or afternoon? Well it'll be morning when it comes out, but it's afternoon right now. Good day. Have, or a, night. have a good Friday morning, everyone. Or just round it like just easy one. Howdy! Yeah. Hey there! Yeah, hey there! <laughs>
1: Welcome to the show. This week
0: we're talking about D loads. And you already knew that because you clicked on the episode. True. Yeah, it's in the title. I love how oh. we do that. We like tell them what we're talking about. With like they obviously know.
1: Yeah, well, just like the D loads that we program for you. If you're not interested, skip this one. What do you reckon? Yeah. Everybody skips D-Loads, let's be honest. I was astonished because I put up a story post asking for questions, and I thought I'd get fuck all back. You
0: um, know why, though? You know why you got some good questions? Why? Was because the the uh, questions that we were after were specific. To D-Loads? To anything. You know how when you do like a, ask me questions, you get like nothing. But if you say ask me questions about... Ads, yeah, it's true. People want direction. better questions. Right. Well, in this
1: instance, I actually got quite a few good questions, which I take to mean that people actually care about deloads, which is great because, in my experience as a coach, the majority of people hate them.
0: Um. Yep. So, also for the record, before Will continues, Will said, "I shoddy uh, introing this week because I've got a sweet joke." Well, that was that and was that my was sweet joke. joke.
1: <laughs> skip this episode if you want. If you'd skip a deload,
0: yeah, that was my sweet
1: joke. So, let's... Rubbish, be- <laughs> bro. <laughs> it was pretty shitty. <laughs> Thought that wanted to bring the house down. Um, alrighty, Alex. Why don't, you, why don't you start us off? What is a
0: deload? So, a deload is just a reduction in training stress. And whether that comes from volume or intensity or frequency, that is obviously what we are going to talk about in this episode. But yeah, just reducing your overall training stress.
1: Actually, um, I want to know... Is there like a line in the sand that you personally draw that would delineate a deload
0: from just like an introductory or easy week of training? Well, yeah, I was going to go into that um a bit later, but I actually very rarely will call a deload a deload. I usually will just disguise it as the first week of the block, which my clients always know the first week of the block or the cycle is the easiest week.
1: Yeah, but... I- just so the for some context for the listeners um oftentimes in the first week of your block, say you're transitioning from eights to sixes. your first week of sixes might be a few kilos lighter than your last week of eights, right, but it's still a week of training where the first week is work it's just it's just
0: markedly easier than the week prior I think the the um differentiation there is like when you actually change phases mm. The first week of that new phase is the, the intro or the deload. Okay. I versus see. like, you know, if you go from 10s to 8s to 6s over the course of six weeks, mm. that first block might be 6s, but that's not really an intro. Yeah. It's just continuation of the the previous block. Yeah. So,
1: you, you'll undulate the difficulty as the intensity creeps up a little bit, but the the intro or whatever comes at the start of the yeah, block. Yeah. And usually okay. the
0: intro will be like, will be the first week of the, that new cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the exercises will be different. So it'll be almost like a feel a week.
1: Right. Well, I, I more or less agree with your def- definition. Like a deload is a reduction in training stress. Um, I would probably just for semantic purposes say the difference between a deload and say an introductory week or an easy-ish week of training is that the purpose of a deload isn't necessarily to promote adaptation. It's to It's to allow recovery so that future training can promote adaptation. That would be... So like as in a deload for me is deliberately less than the amount of stress that would impose adaptation. There might be some delayed improvements that come about because of your previous training, but the deload itself isn't enough to get you better. If you chronically did that much, you wouldn't get better. Whereas the introductory
0: week of a program might be enough to actually get you better chronically at a really slow rate, say. I think the, uh, the way that we differ there is that I make my intro weeks like very easy. Right. And often with uh, a couple of slots missing. Mm -hmm. or with like a couple of sets chopped out for a few exercises. Oh, so in that case, it's deload-esque. It it is very deload-esque. Right.
1: Um, Yeah, good use of esque, even if you were just emulating me. I liked it. I was. Um, You're actually sounding increasingly erudite as you talk with me. Do you know what erudite means? Is that like aerodynamic? Yeah, I was going to say, it's like (laughs) what planes are so they can go through the air. Um, Yeah, no, good. Your erudition is improving.
0: Can you define that on the Erudition. yeah
1: well it's like how you correctly say a word you know you've got to like erudinate it so that other people can hear it correctly you know what i'm talking about that's one of my worst ever puns it's a it's a pun about well it was actually pronunciation that became enunciation um yeah erudition is just like your degree of learnedness enunciation is the clearness with which you make sounds and pronunciation or pronunciation i actually don't know which one's correct i believe it's pronunciation is is assigning the correct sound to the correct syllables in words when you pronounce them? Yeah, cool, man. Cool. Well, now that we've <laughs> now that we've knocked that out of the park, let's talk some shit about training, eh? So, deloads deliberate reductions in training stress. So um, the, yeah. I've actually said what the purpose of a deload yeah, is for I've me. I've got that too. Yeah. So, well, you tell me.
0: Well, I said reduce fatigue and return performance to baseline before another push in training difficulty.
1: Yeah. So, more or less, entirely agree. It's basically I consider deloads the thing that cement or maybe not even necessarily cement the prior adaptations but reduce fatigue yeah to allow future training to be productive in some degree they may cement the prior adaptations because if you train chronically fatigued then you might actually get so overwhelmed that you don't realize the gains you otherwise would have from previous training as well simply because you get so fatigued that you can't train productively or you might get injured or or something undesirable like that so yeah they're there to facilitate the training that you are doing um how do we know when it's time to deload
0: well i think this um, is often hard to know exactly when the time is right which is why it's hard to and this is the next point it's hard to often plan exactly when we want to put these weeks because we don't know how well someone's going to progress and we don't know whether they're going to continue progressing when we th- when we think they might need a deload so um there are some signs that the the body will begin to fatigue. You'll feel like all the sleep in the world isn't enough sleep. You might get some joint fatigue. You might just like get halfway through a session and just feel like you've just had enough. And those are probably good signs that you know you might need a reduction in um in training stress or a deload week. But if the um other recovery modalities that we use aren't in check, then you might need to look at those first. So, like, if you're not sleeping enough, if you're not eating enough calories, um, those are probably the big two. Um, And you're feeling beat up, joint fatigue, and you're tired all the time. It might not be that you need a deload. It might be that you need more sleep. So, often those signs aren't just that you need a deload.
1: No, they're signs of under-recovery. And then a deload is one tool with which we can address the under-recovery... issue but i would say that with people who are say you know say they've accumulated extra fatigue so they're sore they're moving like crap whatever it happens to be not enjoying training and they're eating poorly and they're sleeping poorly i still think in those instances that for the most part a deload will help you because if you've accumulated the fatigue there's no point trying to heap it on and just say oh we'll throw some more recovery resources at you you've got to Reduce the stresses, allow for recovery to catch up, so you
0: are roughly back at baseline, and then resume training again. But those those people who, if it's like a one off bad week of eating or whatever, yeah, yeah. Um, but if it's someone who's consistently eating badly and not sleeping enough, you're not going to be able to get enough loading weeks for them to progress at the rate you want, and you might not be able to throw four or five consecutive loading weeks at them before they might need quote unquote a deload. Mm. So you have to then go back to those those big points of recovery to ensure that you can continue them progressing longer
1: yeah yeah no i agree entirely with that i just more mean that if somebody's like hey, i've had three or four really shitty weeks of eating and my training's beating me up more than it normally would you don't go oh let's go back to eating normally and we'll just keep training hard you probably go okay like we need a reset the deload load marks will reset they begin eating normally again their recovery resources come back to normal their capacity to train comes back to normal and then hopefully like you were saying you actually restore the ability to have you know, subsequent loading blocks be long enough to be productive. Yeah. Um, when do we know it's time to deload? So I more or less agree with what you've said, although you actually alluded to it in your earlier answer um, that deloads can be useful when you are introducing a lot of new training stress or you're intending to finish, a, like, finish one block and transition to training for another goal. So there's a time where we can sort of arbitrarily impose a deload. Um, so the instance I think you you gave was transitioning from like a hypertrophy block to a strength block. Um, spoiler alert, we're going to get Mike Isretel on the podcast in the next few weeks, hopefully, to talk a little bit about this. But some of the residual fatigue you might have accumulated from your hypertrophy training will inhibit your ability to do strength training well, possibly to adapt well from strength training. Dr. Michael help explain that on the podcast. Um, so possibly after those periods... Even if your first week of strength training is likely to be pretty easy, it would still be worth implementing a deload, right? So there's there are arbitrary time points at which most people want to deload. A taper for a powerlifting comp is a deload. So there's another arbitrary time. So when do we know um, when it's helpful in planning? When there are signs that yeah the athlete's not recovering well? Um, he, do you think do you think you want to implement the deload before those signs of under recovery come up, or like at a certain threshold? at them or at the point
0: at which training becomes untenable or what? I think it depends on um, what the training goal is. If the training goal is to continue to push someone and then try and get that super compensation, then we, may, we might let them go another week um, and push another week before we deload. Mm. But again, it depends. Like, I think the biggest thing is the timing mm. for like competition timing. If someone's really beat up and they're like six weeks out and their next two weeks are supposed to be you know, difficult fives and sixes, sets of fives and sixes. And you can just tell they're not going to be able to get through it. They might need a deload then mm. before it gets worse. And then you can kind of just get their peak, right? Yeah. Versus getting to a point where it's like irreversible and you don't have enough time.
1: Yeah. So in some point, it, it, sorry, in some respect, it takes some
0: idea of like the global overview of what their training direction yeah, is. We need, yeah. We need more more context to answer that question.
1: Yeah. Um well, yeah, broadly, I agree with everything you've said there. I, I think this is where you and I differ. Or actually, I'm not even sure if we differ. I don't mind having arbitrary timing of deloads across programs, um, You know, whether it be every fourth week, fifth week, sixth week, or eighth week. I don't think that's necessarily bad, and particularly where it does conform with that idea of where you want the lifter to be in 10 weeks' time or something. Um, I don't think that's bad, although I... <sighs> I used... Okay, I should give some context. I used to love basically like a three-up, one-down approach for people all the time. You know, three hard weeks, deload, three hard weeks, deload. And it made... Or four hard weeks, deload, whatever it happened to be. And it made planning really easy because I would, you know, basically try to surpass a rep PB in week three or four or whatever it happened to be in the rep zone that they were training in. And then I'd have a deload, they'd recover a bit, and then I'd push in usually a slightly lower rep bracket. And it just made planning easy and it worked great. Um... And then I began subscribing more to a school of thought of like hey, if the training stress is dosed appropriately, you shouldn't need as big a swings between, between like loading weeks and unloading weeks to allow people to recover and keep progressing. Um, and so I reduced the amount of deloading I did quite a lot and I just had, I just had the first week of each subsequent block be easy enough that I thought people would recover mostly well and then you know when those symptoms that we were talking about of poor training emerged or where it's, where it just seemed appropriate in the program to facilitate another training block, I'd, I'd put in a full deload. Um, now, I think the pendulum's swinging a little bit back more towards the middle with me, where I'm starting to think that having, having sort of semi-regularly imposed deloads can be good. Um, partly because I think that people do just accumulate fatigue, even with training that's not extremely dosed. They do just accumulate fatigue, and I think it's a nice psychological break. And partly because I think it does give you a little bit more freedom to push people. Um, but I'm not entirely certain. So, so when is it time to deload? For me, agree almost entirely with what Alex said, but I'm not, I'm not against the idea of having some sort of arbitrary time points for deloading, particularly in those longer off-season blocks and things where you might have like 12 or 15 weeks of unbroken training before you start a prep. I think it can be okay. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So with the, um, three up, one down thing, I think... The best way to conceptualize this is to zoom out into like a one year. Mm. If you deload every four weeks, you are deloading uh, what three months of the year? Yep. Three four months of the year where you're not training productively. I think that is just like in itself very obvious that you could be doing more training weeks.
1: Sure, but this is where I this is where I disagree a little bit because one like. There's some type of infinite regression with that because then you could say, well, like, you know, what if we deloaded one week in every 52, then we're trading off 2% of our chances to adapt, right? Yeah, of course. So to some, like, to some degree, you need to build in recovery. That's number one. Number two, it may be that that reduction in training stress facilitates better training and better adaptations in the other weeks to the point that they're beneficial. And there is some evidence that having a, like chronically high levels of fatigue inhibits your adaptations to training so it's possible that you actually get more from less by doing that and there is some evidence i want i'm going to really misrepresent the study because i haven't read it cover to cover and i can't remember the authors or anything but there was one there was one study where there was people who had a training condition of something like 14 weeks straight and then another group had something like whatever it was six weeks on four weeks off six weeks on which is like absurd, that's not at all like a deload, but they had a break in the middle of the training, right? And the groups got equal gains despite one group actually training less across that time. I'm not quite sure the reasons that they put put forward for it. I'm going to look up the study and come back on the podcast and explain it properly at some stage. But there is actually some evidence that, that with fewer loading weeks across a similar time period, people can get similar adaptations. So I'm not I'm not sold that that logic entirely holds. It holds to some degree, otherwise you'd just fucking barely train at all, right? But I'm not I'm not sure at what point it goes from being a net benefit to a net negative. That's what I'm saying. And if it does facilitate good training, then maybe deloading more often than people would like is helpful because again, sorry before I give you the chance to respond, when we think to like how many days a week we want to train and things, you could make a similar case, right? Like there's 7 days in the week if we just trained a little bit on all seven of them, we could be like doing some of the promoted adaptation every day. But you and I have both found that consolidating work to four, maybe five days, you know, allowing full recovery on other days, having days off for certain body parts and things is, is helpful, right? So on a longer time scale, perhaps that's true too. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I, I don't disagree with anything that you've said, but I think the way we need to look at it is like the example you mentioned earlier with the, three loading weeks and then the deload. In that third loading week, you're really trying to push like a rep PB or you're like really trying to push a volume mm. or whatever the case is. Mm. And the way that you and I both program isn't that aggressive. No. And it's a lot more conservative. And there's a lot more, as you said just then, recovery built in within the week. There's mm. there's contrast, there's highs and lows. There's um, We're not doing the same lift on every day. There's like recovery built in in the week that should allow you to get to the next week. And then allow you to get to the next week, and allow you to get to the next week. Sure, but even then, consistently like- getting to the next week. And you know, I wrote in my notes here, um, somewhere between every four and ten weeks. So it's not like, it's not like we're going like six months without a deload. Yeah, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that if we make training a little bit more conservative, um, in the first place, we shouldn't need a full deload as often.
1: Sure, but. My two responses to that are, one, even under conditions of conservative training, I'm not sure at what point it stops being beneficial to have the extra recovery. So, you know, in practice, I tend to be very close to you, so we don't really differ, but but my thinking is this. Yeah, one, I'm not sure at what point, even under conservative training, a deload is not beneficial. And two, I'm also not sure whether always being conservative to prevent the need for a deload is better or less better than than actually pushing people and letting them have a little bit of extra rope and recovering there as well. I'm just not sure. So yeah. so when I say I'm not sure, I'm also not advocating for like hardcore 3 weeks on, 1 week off. I'm not saying deload all the time arbitrarily, but I am saying there's a case to be made for thinking about it maybe. And I'm yeah, I'm not ready to set my
0: position in stone and say this is the absolute best thing. I'm just I'm honestly not sure. Yeah. And, you know, like you even mentioned earlier there, are those waves um, up and down within a Mm. given training cycle before an intro week or before a deload, Mm. that sort of gives you that little bit of recovery back to continue pushing. Yeah, for sure. It's almost like mini deloads along the way. Yeah. And
1: when we, like, if I cast my mind back to some of the most productive training I've ever had, it was productive for lots and lots of reasons, but the six or so months I was on placement in 2017, um, I was training between 4 and 6 days a week 6 days for about the first 3 or 4 months right doing quite high volumes of work and i would have four loading weeks the first week of which was like an intro week like we just dis- like we discussed earlier you know maybe one less set starting at weights just below the ending intensity of the previous block so actually an easy week right and by the fourth week it was always really hard like very very hard loading pushing for pbs like you know so crazy swing in difficulty And then I would also have a full deload. And when I was training six days a week, my full deload cut back to four days with reduced volume and intensity. So like super hardcore cut. And then I went back to intro week, push for four weeks and so on. And so those massive swings in training difficulty, when I did that for six months, I had some of the best gains I've ever had. I also slept more than I almost ever have, had other like less lifestyle stresses, was really focused on training. Like there was lots of things that made it really good. But but when i look at that that's in total contrast to a lot of the other things i've ever done and it really worked. so so yeah i'm still i'm not entirely sure and i don't think i don't think it's incompatible to also have undulations in difficulty within your loading blocks to have like mini deloads and things on the way and
0: still build in the big deloads.
1: i'm just not sure.
0: yeah i think the sweet spot for most people is going to be you know between 4 and 8 weeks, 5 and 6 weeks somewhere in there.
1: Mm, yeah and i think that's true too. and most people Here's something else. Most people who are really resistant to the idea of deloading, and like, like everybody is to a degree, because again, like training's a hobby. So when you say deload, you're like saying do your hobby less, which which no one likes. Um, most people who are really resistant to it are, I don't think they're actually anxious that they're that they're going to lose gains, but I think they're anxious that they're like trading in the opportunity for future gains. If you know what I mean, like they feel like every week or every session they put down is like a deposit in a bank account and that when you when you say hey let's pull back for a little bit they're like fuck like i could be progressing right now i'm not and they get they get anxious in that moment but when you start building in deloads every 4 or 8 weeks or whatever it happens to be um, and you actually get people in the in the process of doing that and they see that their results get better part of that anxiety also goes away and i'm not sure if the anxiety is like fatigue related or what but they start seeing from a longer term perspective that actually some fatigue management stuff really helps you don't need to be pedal to the metal all the time you need to have those pulses in your training where you are, where you are pushing and pulling, and actually just letting yourself get better, rather than trying to force the process the whole time. Do you agree?
0: Yeah, it's just like any um, any new training idea that you use, or if you change coaches, like something new. It's that experience from from doing something new. You then trust it the next time. Mm. So, but- like you, if you're someone who trains heavy all the time, leading into a comp. Um, and then you get a new coach who's maybe a little bit more conservative and you, you're not really too sure about it and you think you need to lift heavy and then you get to the comp and you do just as well or better, Yeah. then from that comp, you'll be like, oh, okay, yeah, maybe I don't need to train heavy all the time. Mm. And then you trust that experience. Yeah. And the same thing rings true um, in this instance as well. Yeah.
1: And if I, one final point on planning deloads as opposed to having them come in when the signs emerge, an advantage of saying we're going to deload in this week or at the very least like sometime you know in the next block or two we're going to put in a deload you know for these reasons an advantage of saying that is some people will see the need to deload as like a failure on their part like you go oh hey you're looking pretty beaten up let's put in a deload before your next block some people go oh fuck like i'm not good enough i'm not progressing at the rate they expect i'm getting really beaten up i can't hack this training i'm not good why don't i adapt and they get all like angst in up in their head and really it's just a very normal part of the training process to say hey you've done something that's challenging your body needs a break let's take a break so we can do it again so in some ways sort of saying we're going to do we're going to do this roughly this often means it's not unexpected it's it's not sort of contingent on their performance and so they don't take it as a judgment of their performance
0: does that make sense yeah absolutely but you could even go the other way and frame it as a positive for the lifter and you could say like you know these next two weeks i'm really going to push you i want you to give you know i want you to give me every everything you have Mm-hmm. including all your accessory work, including, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, when you really hit your rep targets and, you know, get to your RPEs, whatever, because we're going to have an easy week coming up. So, like, earn earn the easy week. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, that's
1: probably really smart. I thought you meant you were going to frame it the other way because you gave me a really good brainwave, which is for people who do do reactive deloads and they are concerned that their client might view it as a failure, if you as a coach were to frame it by saying, like, hey, you know, we've been pushing you really hard, I can see you've accumulated some fatigue, but you've been doing the hard work. Let's take a deload, let that fatigue wash away and see what you've earned from that. And like, I I bet your performance will bounce back. That could also give people a more positive, like make them appraise it more positively when they don't
0: necessarily really
1: want to do it. Yeah, and you can say the same thing to people
0: during like a a peak, for instance. Mm. Like, you know, we are peaking for nationals at the moment and we've each got a few lifters who are peaking for nationals at the moment. And Mm -hmm. for them, like things are going to start to move slowly and all that. And you can really say to them like, it's moving slowly because you're tired. Once you, once you taper and you recover, on the day, everything's going to fly and then you know, they get that trust in you yeah. that the taper will work or whatever the case is.
1: Hey, um, listeners and Alex, if anybody thinks of somebody who's got a grounding in the relationship between like physiology and psychology, shoot us a line because I was just thinking there's, there's something really interesting to be discussed which is whether your accumulated physiological fatigue and like just generally, your fatigue state influences your affect, so it influences your emotional state. Um, and not whether that necessarily has like a material impa- impact on how you train, but like on how you appraise training and how much just general stress you have mentally. because I bet that people who are really, really fatigued from training really hard all the time, are also just more easily irritable and get negative and things like that. Just like, do you yeah, agree? Yeah, hundred percent, absolutely, right. Hundred percent. So I'm sure there's some expert out there that we could get on the podcast that, that could talk to us about this and what the implications are and like for you know coaching and talking to athletes and planning training and stuff. But I bet that's a thing. And yeah, so I'm one mu- of the r- like, I know personally, I'm much more grumpy like during comprem. Oh shit! Yeah, I'm I'm exactly the same. Um, but you know what that means and what we should do about it. I don't know. So that'd be a cool thing to have on the podcast. If somebody knows someone, shoot us a line. That'd be, that'd be a cool thing to talk about.
0: All right, we're going to take a break.
1: Yep, let's do it. Weekly weight. All right, we're back. Weekly weight 60. Sorry for the abrupt break, but Alex needed toilet time. Yeah, I'm
0: trying to stay hydrated.
1: Is that what it is? I was wondering because you've walked in here the past three weeks drinking a one and a half liter soft drink, um, diet soft drink for everybody out there and then watching my calories. Watching your calories is that under instruction? Are you No. No. Cuz I I thought you were actually right on competition weight. Oh, no I am. Okay, so it's not like the hardcore diet strategy of I just need to drink this to feel like I'm having something palatable. No. No, you just you're just doing it. Well, you're interrupting our recording schedule,
0: bro. So so let's have a bit less of that. What do you reckon? I reckon less definitions from Will. <laughs> The people love them. Who are the people? Um, I don't know. Name three right, right now who love... You, me, Chrissy. Digby,
1: <laughs> Digby. Dig, me. Dig me. <laughs> um, Look, people love it. I am... Have I already made the thesaurus joke that it's a dinosaur that tells you what things mean? Probably. No. Okay, well, I'm That's the enough. show thesaurus. <laughs> That's enough. No, right, whatever. Um, the next question that you helpfully wrote down for us was how often do we deload in the different training phases? And this is more or less the question that got sent to me a number of times on my Q&A sticker as well. So, Alex, what do you reckon?
0: Yeah, it's going to fall in the 4 to 10 weeks um, bracket, somewhere in 4 to 10 weeks uh, for all phases. And probably towards the center of that bracket for me, um, 6 to 8 weeks is probably where I like to like to plan a deload. Um, for heavier training blocks it'll be on the more frequent end and for lighter training blocks it will be on the less frequent end
1: yeah i basically agree with that um i think during hypertrophy training there like yeah the stress just isn't intense enough to warrant deloads more than every whatever it is 6 weeks or so for most people unless you are doing really really aggressive phases of accumulation but even then i'm not certain that that's necessary For strength, I think one of the reasons that we deload more frequently isn't necessarily that you accumulate a heap more fatigue, but it's that fatigue itself inhibits your ability to do the work a lot more. So if you're trying to do, you know, whatever it is, just some grunt work into like 80 to 85% range, that's like really challenging, you know, at the best of times. But when you actually start to accumulate fatigue, not only is it more challenging, like disproportionately more so but your ability to do it well which actually really matters when you're trying to you know practice good technique and things in the power lifts degrades super quickly whereas for hypertrophy if it's like you're just grinding out whatever it is 12s at 60 percent or something you can do it under a reasonable amount of fatigue and particularly when you're doing accessory works where the motor pattern itself um the motor pattern itself isn't the most important thing give or take like just ensuring that you actually put the stress in the right muscles and shit like that when, yeah, when you can actually deal with a bit more technical degre- degradation, it's probably just less of a big deal. So you can, you can deal with more fatigue. Do you agree with that?
0: Yeah. And also, um, during our heavier training blocks, we're going to have a greater percentage of our work dedicated to the main lifts. So-
1: oh, so now you agree with me on that? Cause that's what I was trying to say during the squat podcast. And then you're like, Oh, it's pretty much the same. And you remember? If you haven't listened to the squat podcast, go to the part where we talk about how many sets of squats you do in strength phases and how many sets of accessories you do. I'm so smug I didn't right say,
0: now. No, no, I didn't. I never even said in my answer just then that there's going to be more sets of squats. I said a greater percentage of our work is going to be. I said. But I literally said, 6 to 12 sets this is weasel words
1: I'm going to let you finish your point you now but I want the no, audience to...
0: to I'm happy for everyone to go back and listen to what I said because I actually listened to it
1: everyone go back and listen to what he said I'm air right now I said there's going right
0: to be the same number of sets of squats in each phase but less sets of accessories in strength phases and peaking phases why
1: would I believe anything you ever said now Hell, okay, just can finish your point anyway. So a greater proportion of your work is dedicated towards the main lifts in strength phases. So it's more important that we
0: stay fresher, so we're going to need to deload uh, more often. To yeah, fully agree. Continue like, building those technical qualities because when we are tired, it's harder to develop technical qualities.
1: Yes, and I also think that the – I don't know how I'm going to express this well – um, way back in the day on weekly weights, somebody asked us a question about deloads. I think in the first QA episode. and one of the things I said was in hypertrophy phases, um, it's like we deload mostly volume because you've got like you've been working you've been pushing your volumes relatively high and your intensity is quite low, so bringing down intensity doesn't do much to reduce stress. And then the reverse tends to be true in strength phases. When you deload, your volumes are actually mostly moderate. So pulling back a little on volume but a lot on intensity helps you reduce fatigue. Um how does this relate to what you were just saying again? I'm full blanking. Uh, technical quality developing technical qualities? Negative. Um portion of work. Hell, here's what it is. <laughs> no, really it's, so not, it's not it's not that. Uh, I was rattled. I was like, fuck, I'm gonna sound like a dickhead on the podcast, which is abnormal. Um <laughs> no. So in hypertrophy phases, right? I typically set my volumes, like after, say, an intro week or whatever, I set my volumes at roughly what I want people to be working at. And maybe in the last week before a deload or before a transition to a new block, I might push them a little bit higher. But the volumes are basically about where they are. And so because I'm not progressing the volume, which is that primary stressor that I deload that much, I don't expect that if I've set it roughly correctly, that fatigue is going to accumulate that much that rapidly because the volume is basically set. Whereas in a strength phase, the main stressor is the intensity with which you are working, you know, the volumes are set. But that main stressor is actually also progressing week to week most of the time. Like we rarely do strength phases where none of the intensity progresses on any of our main lifts, right? It's it's always creeping up here and there. And because that is the primary stressor and you are progressing it week by week, you also ex- expect that week by week, the amount of stress that they're undergoing is going to increase more. Does that kind of make sense now that yeah, I said it like that? 100%. Thank and Christ, the, I remember that. Way, I felt like an absolute tool.
0: <laughs> the um, another good way to conceptually think about it is like during a higher volume training block, the things that are going to be sore are our muscles. Mm. So in order to reduce soreness in our muscles, we need to do less total work. Yep. Whereas in an intensity block, it might be like our joints, or we might just be nervous system tired, like cent- like just fatigued, mm. and um the biggest way to get rid of that is to do lighter work. Yeah. So, like, that's an easy way to think about what should go when. Yeah.
1: I'm not entirely sure that's physiologically accurate, but I completely agree with all the substance of what you said. So I'm going to let it fly. Um, you're so lucky Luke Tulloch's not on the podcast again either. Oh, it's PNS and CNS is over a little bit. Oh. Don't worry, we'll get him on again. He was good fun. Um, <laughs> okay, so I agree. More frequently in heavier training phases, probably less frequently in lighter training phases. Um, now, I've also, I've also alluded to where the deload comes from in the different phases in my last answer, but let's let's do this phase by phase. In a hypertrophy phase, what kinds of reductions in intensity and volume do you expect to make when you deload someone?
0: Um, in volume, I'll usually cut one set out of the main lifts. Mm -hmm. So let's say they're doing four sets of 10 Mm -hmm. in that deload week or, but I, I'll usually use that as an intro so that it'll be like a three by eight. Yeah. So that's a reduction of how, how many percent 40 to 24, like nearly 50. Yeah. It's a big reduction, big reduction, about 40% of (laughs) of volume mm-hmm. with intensity only like 10 to 15%. Right. So most of the reduction comes from volume.
1: I pretty much agree across the in- I'm sorry across the accessory lifts as well I'll do something similar mm. sometimes as well so we spoke I think on the last episode I was talking about how I often write my progressions for accessories sometimes in deloads I'll write I normally give an intensity range and a I'm sorry yeah a rep range and a like reps and reserve guide. Um, for deloads, sometimes I'll write at the very bottom end of that reps and reserve bracket, sorry, of that rep range bracket and write a high number of reps and reserve. So rather than doing like three sets of six to 10, I'll write two sets of six and I'll write a higher number of reps and reserve just to reduce the volume more. And I typically do the same amount of set reduction in accessories as I do in the main lift. So if I brought my main lift down from four sets to three, so, you know, reduction of a quarter of set volume, I would do something similar on my accessory work. And sometimes just for elegance's sake, I, I love the word elegant recently on the podcast. Elegant solutions. Yes. Um, some, yeah, sometimes just for the sake of that, if somebody was doing, say, two back exercises on a given day, three sets of one and three sets of another or something, I might just make them do three sets of one of them to deload instead of two sets of two exercises because um, it probably doesn't matter um but yeah i do roughly the same so reduce the rep targets increase the reps and reserve reduce the sets but most of the reduction comes from sets what about when we move into a general strength phase
0: yeah so like we said earlier the reduction the biggest reduction is going to come in intensity mm-hmm. so i think about a, a 20 to 30% drop in intensity um and only a 10 or 10 or 20% drop in volume
1: yeah i'd be similar i'm again it depends because I might be inclined to reduce set volume a little bit, Um, you know, maybe by one set. But if I'm doing, say, five sets of squats and I reduce it to four, that's not as big of a reduction. Um, But certainly I make a bigger reduction in intensity. And like Alex um, so cleverly said earlier when I was roasting him for it, because more of our work is done in the main lifts as well. If you do go from figurative numbers, if you go from doing four sets of five at 200 kilos on the squat and you make a 15% reduction, so that takes down to 170 kilos, and it becomes three sets of five. That's a very big reduction in stress um, when that's the bulk of your session. But something I also sometimes do is reduce the rep target so it gets even further from failure. So where I do only make a 10 or 15% reduction in intensity, I drop the rep target significantly to reduce proximity to failure. Um, because that's another thing that makes like training on a set-by-set basis really stressful. So I might go from... Again, we'll keep that exact example. Four sets of five at 200 kilos. I might reduce intensity 15%, so 170 kilos. Drop a set, so it's three sets, and drop a rep, so it's three sets of four at 170. And that would be a typical full deload. So that's that's a very, very easy week in comparison to the loading week. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. Um, is that pretty much similar to what you'd do? Very similar. Yeah, and then my deloading protocol for the accessories is roughly the same as the hypertrophy work. It's just they're a lesser proportion of the work. Again, as Alex so cleverly said. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Will. <laughs> um, what was our next question?
0: Um, that's it. Really? Yeah. Oh, shit. This is a quick episode. Mm. Now we've got a and a Do
1: you want to take another quick break before the q and A? Mm. I don't really feel I need one. No, no. Let's just hit the Q&A. Okay, let's... So I can go home and nap. <laughs> go home and nap. All right. I'm going to shout out all the people that asked me pretty much the same questions. Um... Okay, so, to Hungry Hungarian, um, to Sut Strong, to, who else, um, to kind of Steph Carter, um, to those three people, um, thank you for your questions they all basically asked, do you vary your deload approaches across lifters and phases and what would influence that we've spoken about phases we'll talk about lifters a little bit more i got a good question about that um okay so another one from bouncy was deloads during a 12-week comp prep um what type of factors would influence when you would put deloads in that just let's
0: clarify our positions again Um, If it was a 12 week comp prep I'd probably put in two And Mm -hmm. that would be The week of the comp Yep And about halfway through Yep So So it would be like You'd split the um, You'd split into two phases And you'd have a higher volume phase And then a kind of a Strengthy peaking phase Mm -hmm. Um, And you'd have a deload Right in the middle And the deload would be like For me an introduction To the um, Heavier phase So it might be Just very light Lower rep sets
1: yeah, I think depending on the lifter, I would either do exactly as Alex said or maybe even have a second deload in. So I have like three or four loading weeks, deload, three or four loading weeks, deload, three or four loading weeks into the taper. So, um, But that might be more deloads than is necessary. So it also just depends on the lifter how heavy of loads they're handling and how well they, ha- they hack it, but something like that. I pretty much agree. Um, now, here we go. Um Alex Sala, so Alex Dada um, asked us, frequency in relation to training age or style of training? So the frequency of deloads over your training age.
0: Um, do you have any immediate thoughts on that? I don't know if I have any immediate thoughts on that. The population that I coach isn't like a huge range of ages. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I have a grasp on whether people fatigue quicker when they get older or whatever the case is, so I'm not really too sure. Well, okay. The question is training age,
1: which means exposure to training. My immediate thought is that beginners probably need deloads much less frequently because they just need less training stress, right? Like we spoke on the Programming the Beginner podcast about how not much of relatively easy shit gets them better. So, you know, so people in the first six or eight months or year of training probably don't need many deloads and their deloads don't really need to be that dramatic and like, you know, you're not really pushing them that hard. Um, so it's sort of on an as-needs basis. I think the intermediate phase, which we also spoke about on the podcast, is like purgatory can be really long. And so for some people at the start of that, they might need deloads relatively infrequently. And then as their training age progresses, maybe because the relative difficulty of the training stress that they're imposed, um, they're imposed upon, is yeah. imposed upon them. That's yeah. right. Um Increases maybe the frequency of deloads that they need comes up, but but at that point I start saying maybe because once people have been subjected to training for more of a longer time, the individual differences start to emerge a lot more. And so there are some people who can probably just hack quite a lot of training for quite a long time and continue to be productive and adapt well. And there's some people for whom you just you would start to see those patterns of performance emerge where you say, okay, this person probably needs more deloading. And also at that point you probably start to get a grasp for people. Of whether they do need blocks that accelerate in difficulty more, and blocks that do accelerate in difficulty more quickly, probably also need deloads more frequently than blocks that are relatively flatlined in difficulty. So at that point, I think it really starts to depend more on training. Um, Alex mentioned chronological age, and that um, that probably in- influences things as well. But that also has a relationship with training age, and we're about to we're about to get to another question that's similar to this one in that respect as people get older um past a point their recovery capacity reduces so when you're like 15 years old or whatever you can literally train all day party all night and you're just sweet and you know when you're 30 that starts to be harder and presumably when you're like 60 it's harder again um so at some point that in, that influences things and so people with a really really advanced training age are also just very likely to be falling outside the age range at which they recover best um from a chronological perspective, so it's to some degree there's there's interplay there, but if you're sort of just average Joe sitting between the age of twenty and thirty or thirty five then yeah I think as an absolute beginner, probably need it less intermediate you know progressively more until the point at which your individual differences start to determine it, and then advanced lifters genuinely just don't know I guess it depends, but presumably enough to facilitate the hard training that you do and again when we spoke on the podcast about advanced lifters we spoke about how your phases are also de- designed to help you reduce fatigue and stress from other phases as well so you got to start thinking of fatigue management on a much longer time scale um what do you think
0: yeah i've definitely once you started talking i definitely resonated with the particularly the first half of what you had to say about um,
1: before you stop listening sorry before you stop listening
0: no, just like the, the lifters that I coach who have been training for longer, will they get beat up, not necessarily quicker, but they get more beat up mm. and they require like a greater reduction in stress mm. um, in those d weeks. So whether that's just they need a greater reduction of stress as a D-load week or whether that's they need more frequent d weeks, I think that depends on the individual.
1: Yeah. Well, it also just makes sense, right? If you've been training for longer and you're stronger, yeah, exactly. you know, 200 kilos is yeah, more yeah. than 100 and kilos that's, and so on and so Yeah, on.
0: that's the reason that you're going to get more beat up is because the weights you're lifting are literally doing more damage to your body than lighter ones.
1: Yeah. I hope that is
0: a good answer. I think it's a good answer. Yeah, that's a good answer.
1: Um. So similar notes from the strength physio. That's Matt Stewart, isn't it? That is Matt Stewart. Yes. Yeah, shout out to our friend, Matt Stewart, um, who actually handled me at my first international competition in New Zealand in 2000. Oh, it was a disaster. (laughs) (laughs) That's not his fault. Um, Yeah, great guy. Has also handled my client, Tom Clark, at his first international competition. Um, So Matt, the underscore strength physio, asks us, any differences in frequency between junior open and master's athletes? Um, Again, I don't know... But for the same reasons as I just said, I suspect juniors typically will need fewer deloads because they recover better and tend to have a less advanced training age. Open lifters, it's going to be dependent on their training experience, absolute strength, and all those other things we spoke about. And then masters athletes, possibly more frequently. And I, th- the problem with this is I actually can't remember. I need to look this up as well because I'm either going to say this completely wrong one way or completely wrong the other way i remember reading some evidence as to um whether whether old individuals and by old i mean like 65 plus or something benefited from greater or lesser frequency of exposure to strength training and i think i think it was that there was no benefit to greater than one time per week um strength training this was yeah some study where people you know were in a lab doing whatever three sets of 10 at 10 rm some shit like that I think the group that did it once a week got equal or better results than the group that did it twice a week, but I'm not certain. So it may be that older people need less total exposure to training simply because, or not need less, benefit from less because they recover more slowly, in which case I might expect that they also probably need deloads slightly more frequently. Like that kind of makes sense, but I don't know for certain. And I'd need to go find that study, read it, and draw some conclusions from it before before I thought anything more, but probably more frequently, but I don't know. What do you think?
0: Yeah, that's exactly the same uh, line of thinking that I would have. Um, They're going to be able to recover from less, so they should probably do less, and they should probably spend more time deloading than someone who can recover from more. Yeah. Just makes sense. Yeah, it
1: makes sense, but I don't know. Um, (laughs) This has been the... I reckon I've said more I don't knows in this podcast than in ages. Yeah, deloads suck. Yeah, fucking no one's listening. Deloads? <laughs> um, so I'm not yeah, like gonna click on that one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There'll be ten downloads. <laughs> All right.
0: Um, Steve. Oh, also, shout out to us for passing sixty k. Oh, do we- Yeah, well, fuck yeah. Go us. Woo. Thank you for listening. Um,
1: <laughs> okay, Steve Tag, who is Alex and I, um, and my colleague at Lyft, he asks ideal duration of a deload phase. Um, can I give my answer? Yeah, I don't know, but definitely a week. Um, <laughs> and the reason I say definitely a week is because possibly if you were to re- you were to impose a deload um, just on the basis of how much fatigue you observed in someone, you might be able to say, "Hey, if they just had two easy days of training this week, they'd be ready to hit it for the back end." Um, but at that point, you might also just choose to keep them training harder possibly they'd accumulate so much fatigue that they benefit from more than more than one week of unloading and maybe you'd say a week and a half or something. But one week just is convenient. Most people plan their training like micro in one week blocks. So it makes more sense to do that. And if you were like, wow, this person's really fucking beaten up, then you could just make the introductory week of the next block slightly easier again to allow for that. Um, and doing less than a one week deload to me just seems to risk cutting it short. Like you're so anxious about having them miss, you know, what one day of training that you're potentially leaving them under-recovered and not really getting much benefit from the deload. Um, And to some degree, it probably also depends on the nature of the training stress that you've imposed on them. So um, Alex spoke before about, you know, joints and connective tissues and stuff being fatigued. Those tend to be slower recovering than muscles. Um, And so probably in strength blocks and things having less than a week of lighter loading is going to leave you a little bit short changed possibly in hypertrophy blocks you could get away with a little bit shorter of a deload or just having a muscle specific deload but just for planning purposes a week just seems by far the most sensible place to start almost always what do you think
0: yeah for planning a deload i'd definitely always go with a week but like you said there might be circumstances which might mean that you know you um, might deload the second half of a week, or you might de- do one and a half weeks, mm. and a, or two weeks. Mm. And a good way of um thinking about this is like in a uh, comp environment or in mm. a comp taper. Yeah, the stronger someone gets, the longer they're going to taper for. Yes, and essentially that is a longer deload, and also the given lifts taper longer than others. Yeah, so you know the bench press will taper the shortest amount of time then the squat then the deadlift Um, so you know just to say one week across the board is a little bit maybe reductionist yeah very reductionist well I still think so yeah like a week a week's a good (laughs) place to start with you know variance on either side of it yeah Um, but I think the stronger you get and I mentioned this earlier like the stronger someone is the greater reduction in stress they need when they're deload so Mm. their deload might not it might be the same length as you know mine or yours Mm. but um They might be doing even less than we are.
1: Well, to to follow that sort of how strong you are, um, path, right? With say the deadlift, here and there, I'll deadlift, I'll deload the deadlift more than I would deload the squat, which I deload more than the bench press Mm. because of the like because of the degree of stress that each of them imposes, and so the rate of progression. Say that the final week is going to be hard for all three lifts. The rate of progression across three or four weeks or something for the deadlift might be slightly faster than for the bench press and the squat just because you can't sustain as many weeks of as difficult of loading on that lift as well. So in some respects what you just said is taken into account because if you have a deload that's very easy on the deadlift and the first week is also easier than the first week of loading of say the bench press which was deloaded less you have a greater duration of deload and also greater magnitude of reduction in stress. Do you do similar stuff to that?
0: Yes, definitely. Yeah, um, and like the jumps that we take in training are going to be pretty much percentages. Mm. And obviously, if we deadlift the most, the percentage like each kilo is a less percentage of one RM. Yes. So. Yeah. So yeah, that's kind of inbuilt.
1: Yeah. All right. Um, Jess Sewastenko. Okay, Sewa Strong. It's actually hard to say Sewa Like I want to say it with a W. You know, like um, what's his name? The the guy from Looney Tunes. Um uh, uh, the Daffy, no. No, the know. guy who hunts uh, Wadger yeah, Wabbit. Um the, Elmer Fudd. I wanna say like Elmer Fudd, you know, Sewastwong. You, know, you know, oh a widow wabbit, that guy. Oh uh, yeah, that guy. Yeah. Um anyway, <laughs> Jess Sewastenko, S E W A Strong on um on Instagram asks us your thoughts on training the day
0: before a meet. Would love to hear what you think. Exclamation mark. Alex, your thoughts. Uh, I would say no, because I don't think it's necessary. I think doing nothing is actually a greater benefit, like relaxing and sort of staying fresh is going to be greater benefit than, than training. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the risk for training the day before outweighs any benefit that there could be.
1: Yeah. From a pragmatic perspective, I pretty much entirely agree with Alex, um, if anything, like I can be relatively aggressive in my loading during peaks and things, but then I'm always relatively conservative in my tapers um, because I think almost everyone gets more benefit out of being fresh than out of feeling like they've handled heavy weights recently. Um, that said, Lyle McDonald, so the fellow we had on to chat about women at one stage, um, I had an interesting discussion with him at one stage where he was um, he was talking about something that happens in. Um, in athletes and sprinters, especially, I think called unloading syndrome, where some people's top end speed really drops off unless they have exposure to some, like to some high speed running, basically close to competitions. And so, for some of them, they really don't taper very much, or they don't taper intensity um, close to competition because they actually lose speed. And he suspects that that might explain why some lifters do prefer having a much shorter taper or a taper in which intensity is maintained until much closer to the competition. And Mike Teixeira has also re- written about having a couple of clients who barely taper into competitions because particularly in like his emerging strategy style of programming, sometimes he just observes that their performance is best after X amount of loading even without a reduction in reduction in fatigue. So I'm not certain that for everyone you should never train before a meet. But for all the reasons Alex said, I, I would be very, very hesitant to employ a strategy where somebody were to train the day before I meet. I just, uh, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me for 90% of people to ever do something like that and the potential downside is massive. It's a bit like um, people who are peaking for bodybuilding competitions, trying to do like the really, really aggressive water cutting things to try and dry out. Like, if you absolutely nail it, you might look a very tiny bit better, but the risk of really fucking it up and looking, like, 20% worse is massive. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Um, I think I think you can be a little bit more aggressive with your taper, but um, this might mean just handling slightly higher percentages during the taper week. Mm. Like, you might... You know, when I design my taper weeks, my last session is always, like, second or third last warm-ups. Yeah. For, like, a couple of singles. Like, it's, yeah. it's absolutely nothing. You could probably justify... Doing a last warm up or maybe on bench and opener like two days out. Yeah, but any more than that, I don't think is is going to be a benefit. Well,
1: it like it comes back to the point at what like at what point prior to a meet do you actually stop getting stronger from your training as opposed to just accumulating fatigue? So, like most people, I don't know if most people, plenty of people think of um, think of training or, along like the fitness fatigue paradigm where when you lift weights. You, it's not like you tear down structures and you're weaker and then you super compensate by adaptation. What happens is you lift weights and you accumulate some fitness adaptations and you also accumulate fatigue and fatigue masks fitness, right? Um, and it is the balance between the two that basically explains how you perform at a given time. Um, I suspect, and because you accumulate, I'm not certain about this, but I think when you handle relatively heavy loads or you do actually challenging training that... Gives you a lot of fitness benefit. You also accumulate a lot of short term fatigue. I suspect that doing much that would actually make you much stronger close to the competition would mean that you accumulate um, you accumulate fitness at a much lower rate than you were to accumulate fatigue from that session. And even though you dissipate fatigue quickly, chances are it's still not going to be a net benefit for you know minimum a few days um you know at which yeah in which case you probably shouldn't be training the day before a meet like if you're doing stuff the day before a meet and you're going to have degraded all of the all of the fatigue from it by the next day it's probably not enough to make you stronger either so what are you doing you're just you're just in the gym mm. you know so i'm just i don't know
0: i think um for the way that we program people like the way that we taper them is kind of reflective of that mm. it's like we have that big ramp up into that one heavy session and then we pull it back yeah whereas like have you seen the way jess trains really hard it's like extremely hard lots of heavy singles like all the time
1: we should say jess is one of if not the best lifter in australia at the moment she's very very close right yeah she's incredible. over 500 wilks 511 yeah, 511 or something like outrageous
0: and her her ability to handle volume at such a high intensity is certainly not normal No. And for her to follow a protocol of any regard, which would be considered normal, Mm. would be stupid. Yeah. Because she can do so much more. And by doing so much more, she can get so much better. Yeah. Put Um, it like this. Well, You know, like she might hit like five singles, like above a second attempt in the same session. (laughs) Yeah. And like, she seems to do that kind of thing regularly. Yeah. On all the lifts, um, you know, and even in the same week. Yeah. Um, and she comes back the next and week she comes and back is progressing the next Week and continues to do it and continues to do it so for her like her tapering her volume down or her intensity down might look completely different to the way that we do it so mm. she might actually be able to get away with training the day before and you know maybe even do like her last warm up squat, a bench opener and last warm up deadlift or something like that mm. whereas for, if I did that it, it would fucking kill me yeah absolutely so I guess you know she's certainly an outlier in how much she can handle so mm. I'm assuming she's still listening. Possibly. I hope so. Um, yeah, you could probably get away with doing a shitload more than what we can do because, you know, you can tolerate more than what we can. Mm. I Actually,
1: I would be very curious to see somebody like her. Like, like you said, she's at the extreme outside of volume and intensity tolerance. Like, everybody who hasn't looked at her Instagram, go check it out and read the post. She did a post recently about a three-hour training session she did with, like, like nine heavy sets of each lift and like it was nuts.
0: Yeah, that would have taken me six hours.
1: <laughs> At least. I would have well, I wouldn't have finished it.
0: <laughs> um you would have Tony Hamstring again.
1: Yeah, probably. Um yeah, she's quite incredible, but I would actually love to see somebody like that also try a slightly more conservative tapering strategy, even if in most of your loading weeks were that aggressive, and see whether you got a net benefit or not. Because if you didn't then you've learned something. And if you did, then you'd be like, wow, Like I can actually afford to push the shit out of myself in training and then let myself freshen up and be even better again. I honestly just don't know what it would be like for her. And I also don't know what it would be like psychologically for somebody in her position who's so used to just, just grinding things out when you must feel bad and tired. I just don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean, she. I'm sure she does, and I've seen in her Instagram stories and stuff, she posts that she she does get fatigued and she has. <laughs> <who'd have thought? laughs> she has said yeah. to her coach, like, you know, thanks for putting me through all this and dealing with me when i'm fatigued and all this kind of stuff mm. but i'm sure like just chopping that work that she does in half mm. she would feel a hell of a lot better yeah and that still half session for her would for us be like a really fucking hard session yeah so like it's relative yeah anyway in short don't know jess maybe but probably not yeah jess can train the day before comp anyone else know <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah all right um postman Potts, aka aiden Potts, aka potsy Potts lad says three hard weeks of training then deload versus 11 weeks of mild to moderate training then deload i had a pretty long waffle about why i don't know earlier so i'm gonna i'm gonna stick with i don't know but i think three hard weeks isn't really the goal if you're doing that i think it's it's actually got to do with the progression of stress more so than the starting stress like i don't think you should i don't think you should come out of a deload into like fucking hard work straight away ever Partly because the acute to chronic workload ratio is predictive of injury. So if you um, if you go... Uh, I'm not sure if actually if that is the correct term for it. A really, really rapid progression of training intensity or a massive spike in it can predispose you to injury. So that's number one. And number two, I think if you jump out of a deload right into really, really hard training, although the repeated bout effect doesn't dissipate in a week, you will still be slightly sorer from that first session than you would have had you been training into it possibly and two if you do a really really hard week probably you'll accumulate more fatigue than you dissipate over that week so you won't be able to do as hard of a week so it should be more thinking like three weeks where training progresses to very difficult faster or 11 weeks where you try and prevent the progression to extreme difficulty
0: to prolong total progression does that make sense Alex? Yeah and I think the way that he's worded this question is like it's almost like you want to do neither. Hmm. Like Like neither neither. of them sounds good. Yeah, yeah. You want to do neither. So like, you know, some level of something in the middle. Like it's never really black and white. It's always somewhere in the gray.
1: Yeah. All right. Um, Johnny Rowe. So Lewis McMurtry, my friend. So Johnny Rowe actually means Johnny Romantic. How funny is that? That's what... I did not know that.
0: I've always wondered what that was. Yeah.
1: So that was his alias for himself. He was Johnny Romantic. Um, He asked when competing... He's probably the least romantic person I've ever met. Oh, sure. She's a lovely, cuddly bear. But yes, I agree. (laughs) Um, He asked us, when competing, does this podcast make you both worry more about missing a lift? Then he DM'd me and said, I mean, because you have the podcast, does it add pressure when competing or choosing weights for lifts because you don't want to miss and not look like experts? Uh, Alex.
0: We always miss lifts, so no.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. If you're not missing lifts, you're not trying. Um, No, not really, to be honest. I like... I don't think I am known as an excellent lifter, to be honest anyway. Like as in like I can lift weights, I'm decent, but I'm not like no one thinks of me as like Australia's next world champion. Um, I think the way in which I conduct myself at competitions is much more important. Like if I were to be an absolute dickhead and like yell at referees and be rude to spotters and shit like that, that would reflect badly on me, so I'd never want to do that, particularly now that to some degree people know who I am. Um But other than that, no. I mean, like, if I had a really fucking embarrassingly bad meet, I'd just feel silly about it because, like, my clients care about how I do. But so long as I'm out there trying and, like, generally acquitting myself well and just behaving (laughs) friendly-ish, then
0: that's okay, right? What about you, Alex? Yeah, you kind of alluded to this, but my reputation as a lifter doesn't exceed my reputation or what I want my reputation as a coach to be. Yeah. And, like, I care much more about the performance of my own lifters and how that makes me look versus mm. my own performance and how that makes me look. Yeah. That's it. If
1: Alex doesn't PB his total at Nationals, I want everyone to boycott the podcast. Oh, there's
0: if if I don't do that, then that'll be a <laughs> complete failure.
1: Yeah, so well now that we've said that on the podcast, yes, this podcast makes us more stressed because Alex is going to be lying up at night the day before his comp going off. Hey and oh, I f- wanted to
0: make a a thousand dollar bet with you live on the podcast that you wouldn't beat me in the 85s and you didn't take it and you bitched out and you're in the 94s you coward i don't i'm pretty fat right now <laughs> there's no way i'm making 85s i can't renege on that yeah you're gonna bench like 125 at 94 you probably bench one. Oh, 125 i'm lucky
1: come on um are there any other major ones here okay um so arish Zaveri, i'm sorry if i've said that incorrectly says, difference between a deload to reduce systemic stress and to manage niggles and injuries. Um, I'm going to immediately take this one and say that you you might accumulate niggles from really hard training. And so reducing deloads prevents those niggles from turning into injuries. But if you have like an established problem, then you actually want to be seeing a physio and having a management plan and treating it. Um, as opposed to just saying, I'm going to take a week to rest and then come back and hit it again. Like if you have a problem, you've got a problem if you are deloading to prevent the soreness and things that you have from progressing to an injury, then that's just intelligent. Um, and that comes along with reductions in system- like systemic stress and fatigue, right? because lots of fatigue predisposes you to injury. I think that kind of makes sense, and even if you look at the relationship between the amount of sleep people have and their predisposition to injury in other sports, it just kind of makes sense that if you're tired all the time and imposing more physiological stress, you are more likely to get hurt. What do you think, Alex?
0: Yeah, I agree with all, all of what you said, but sometimes we get these niggles that always arise at the same point in training cycles mm. so we might know that if we have five loading weeks of squat that you know maybe our knees start to get sore yeah so then you know we might then use that information to then cut our squats out four weeks yes or know that okay it's the fifth week my knees are gonna get sore this week but i've got to deload next week and i'll be fine yeah. Um sometimes that's just inevitable. But yeah, if there if there's an underlying issue, then like like we always say, go see someone, figure out what's wrong with it, fix it, and then go back to training. Mm-hmm. Don't try and train around stuff all the time if they're continually coming back.
1: Jim Kevin. That's G Y M Kevin, not not like a Jim the name
0: Kevin. Kevin. He's the one and only Jim Kevin. You know him? No. Jim Kevin, as he's a- <laughs> The poor guy. is Jim Kevin. I was going to say, he's stinging for
1: a shout-out. and You've just completely shot him down. Jim Kevin, as I live and breathe, he says to me... Um, well, firstly, he sent me a question that was completely unrelated to deloads. And so I put up my sassy second post saying, make it about deloads. And he got back to me and says, how to properly deload before and after powerlifting meets. Um, we've kind of spoken about how we taper on the podcast before, so I don't really want to reiterate that. After powerlifting competitions... It depends, but just because you've probably had a massive reduction in your training volume and stress, and you've gone and done this big stressful competition, and you probably have some accumulated wear and tear, I would say having a few days off lifting in general and slowly reintroducing lifting across that next week, so maybe going two or three times instead of four or five with reduced intensities and reduced volumes and reduced axial loading and lots of movement variety is smart. But I wouldn't think of it so much as like a deload after competition as I would like a progressive reintroduction of training stress in the most general way possible. What do you think?
0: Yeah, the week after a competition, like you said, we probably want to take the first half of the week off entirely. Or if you are doing stuff, don't do the power lifts.
1: I was going to say, I often do like YOLO arms and like some random back and stuff with my mates. Yeah, like
0: get back in the gym and just do some really light stuff and get your body moving. You'll often find that, if you do nothing for a whole week after a comp, you'll be more stiff and you'll get more sore that first um, week of training. But mm. the way I look at it is like that those first few weeks after the comp are what set us up for that next training phase. So we want to be putting ourselves um, in a position where we're going to be capable of tolerating some volume, you know, probably three or four weeks after the comp or maybe for smaller people, less experienced people, two weeks after the comp. Mm. Um so those first couple of weeks or first week after the comp, we're just kind of slowly building that volume back in mm. and that tolerance back in. If we go from no competition back to tens at 60%, you're going to have a really tough time initially and you're going to get really, really sore. So we want to kind of mitigate that so that we can continue, continue the progression coming.
1: Yeah, I more or less agree. Um, that should be enough. All right. Tom Clark Fitness shoots me two questions. Tom Clark with no E.Fitness. I just found out today that he was religious. Yeah, yeah, pretty religious young boy, um, young man, I should say. Young man, man,
0: more man, man, <laughs> man. <More bad. laughs>
1: um, okay, so he says taking proactive versus reactive deloads. We've spoken about that, um, and TC is a pretty attentive listener, so he'll have checked that one out. Then he also asked, deciding on deloads based on external stresses, when and why. So. At the start of the podcast, I sort of said, like, if you have somebody who's come off a pretty rough week of, like, poor sleep and poor eating and stuff, or rough few weeks, I should say, of that stuff, and have accumulated some fatigue, then it's probably smart to deload them just as a reset, even when you start reducing those stresses. Um, so, I don't think that's necessarily a bad idea, um, it, but it does depend on the nature of the stress. I think emotional stress, like if somebody misses, dumps them or something um (laughs) rip (laughs) yeah that sucks um that like there is certainly a degree to which that emotional stress fills your stress bucket the proverbial you know bucket of stress that you can tolerate and so maybe reducing training stress to accommodate that will help but it really does depend on the individual because with some things that are just emotional stresses going to training is part of how people like like to deal with them Right. And, you know, so some people who are like busy at work or, you know, get dumped by their missus or mister or something want to just go to the gym because it's their time to sort of switch their mind off and do that stuff. And so for them, that's probably less necessary, although you might still have to sort of, you know, accommodate for the fact that they're sleeping less because they're too busy crying and all that shit. Um, Yeah. So anyway, I think it can be a good idea where it's obviously contributing to a lack of recovery, but the degree to which you have to do it, I don't know, probably individual. What do you think?
0: I think he's asking about like if someone has exams coming up should you plan a deload around that I think that's what he's asking oh like foreseeable external stresses that's probably kind of smart I think that's what he's asking
1: oh well well, what do you think about that I think that's smart
0: yeah 100% that's smart like if you know that you've got a two week period where you have exams and you need to study or even if it's the two weeks prior to the exams you might want to you might want to make that entire month like an easier month of training or you might want to pick one of those weeks where you hit the books the hardest yeah and you train the the least
1: you know what's weird is I always loved training during exams and during the study period because I used it as a break from study yeah I trained really well because instead of having a bloody go to uni all the time I was like at home so I actually had more time to train I enjoyed it more and yeah it made me study better because I'd say like I'm going to study till 10 in the morning or whatever like say I woke up at 6 had breaky, I'd study for 3 or 4 hours till 1 the gym was clearing out and 2 I was bored of studying I'd go train, so that'd take me two hours or something. I'd have like a mental reset. I'd feel like I'd knock that out of the park, and then I could come back and study, satisfied that I'd done my work. So in that instance, I really liked it. But I, yeah, if you had like a foreseeable, a foreseeable reason that you wouldn't be able to train as well, then yeah, probably planning a deload for then is just smart. That just yeah, that's good. Um, anything else? No. Okay. Um, I think those are all the relevant questions. So thank you so much for everybody who wrote to me. Also, um,
0: shout out to the guy who. Asked a question that had nothing to do with D loads. Was that this? Is that Jim Kevin again? That was Jim Kevin. Oh man! Come on, Jim. Everybody gives <laughs> Jim's G- Kevin. I called him Jim. <laughs> <laughs> come Everyone, on, Kev.
1: Come on, Kev. Everybody give our oh, man GYM Kevin a follow on Instagram. I reckon because he's, I mean he's obviously an enthusiast. He didn't necessarily read the question box well, I mean, but he's put the word Jim in his Instagram bio. So wh- he obviously loves the gym. I'm going to follow him here and now, live on air, Jim Kevin. He's calling to follow. All right. What's up? That's it for Weekly Weights from me this week. You got
0: anything to add, Alex?
1: No. Nah. Right. Uh,
0: next week will be Programming the Bench, and then the week after should be Israel.
1: Well, we might be recording yeah. Oh, no, no. That's true. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, we're recording with Israel on Friday next week. And that'll come out the following Friday. So, next week will be Bench, Programming the Bench.
1: All right. Um yeah. Kevin Lamb, used to have 187 followers. Now he's got 188. What's up? See you guys.